What's up, everyone, and welcome into the Buffalo Sports Collective. It is Wednesday, October 18th, 2023. As always, I am PK alongside my co-host, Phil. Phil, I have two important things. First, I moved the location of my setup. Not no longer next to a, a window, and I'm no longer in a tiny little like two-foot cubby, so I feel more freedom over here. And my second thing here is I have a question for you. I, I have a question. I guess I should always say I'm PK alongside my co-host, Phil. I might have already said that. I don't know. It all blended together. But Phil, my question is, and I proposed it to the fans already, so they already know the question that's coming. Would legs be arms if our toes were fingers? Oh, man. <laughs> Would legs be arms if our toes were fingers? Yes. That is. I'm confusing. getting philosophical right now. Uh, Weird. That's what you're getting. I don't know where this is coming from. Um, If you can imagine that, uh, I came with that up with that as soon as you said hello. Like when we were logging on, you said hello, and I don't know what. <laughs> about your hello made me go you know this is this is the thing i'm gonna put on my whiteboard today that's fair uh i i don't know i was thinking like handstands I, I was trying to think like can we walk on our arms and i guess people do handstands pretty far so i, I mean you it do. is possible to walk on your arms i mean your hands and i mean your, your arms and legs i guess are pretty similar they do similar ish things they bend similar you don't really have your wrist isn't quite like an ankle bone um but i mean they still do similar things i'm trying to just imagine having like wrists as feet i guess like like do your hands have more mobility than your feet i mean i guess so like you can bend your hand yeah, i think so 180 degrees a lot easier than you can bend your feet so i guess i'm trying to imagine bending my feet now 180 degrees with ease and that seems weird i don't like that um I mean, I get, I, I'm, I guess I'll just say I guess because I, I don't, I don't know. Sure, I, I like, <laughs> I like starting these shows because I could propose these questions and you have no idea what's coming. And half the time, I don't I know what's that. coming and I don't know what's going to come out of my mouth beforehand. So if you have any answers to these questions out there, you, I'm pointing at all of you that are looking at my face right now or Phil's face. I don't know which side of the screen he's on, one or the other, left or right. I don't know. But you can get in contact with us by following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Threads at Buffalo Sports Collective and on Twitter at Buffalo Sports Co. You don't forget to subscribe to our channel wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out our website at buffalosportscollective.com and look for the time breakdowns in the description of the show. Phil, all I can say is um, I'm happy at least I didn't have to stay up until a quarter to midnight um, for a loss because the Bills staggered out of that Giants game with a win, 14-9. to I have in the docket here, it was a barf of a game. There's no way other to describe it other than they just threw up on themselves on the field and played for 60 minutes or attempted to play for 60 minutes. Uh, I don't know where you want us to take this, so I'm going to let you take the wheel, uh, let Jesus take the wheel, and uh, let's see if we can get through this without wanting to punch ourselves in the face. Yeah, I guess we'll start negative so we can finish positive. Uh, I'll take it. There, there were some definite positives to the game, but we'll start with the obvious negative. I and mean, when we talked last episode, you said Super Bowl hopes diminished greatly. I agree. You said pretty much impossible. I thought maybe... They would still have a chance with the defense they have. I thought their defensive front was good. The defense they have is still decent against, you know, high caliber teams. It's going to be tough, sure. But you have the offense that played against a, a Miami team, a Miami defense that's decent and put up a perfect game. I thought if they could kind of recapture that magic and we know the offense can do it because they did it. They had like Josh Allen literally had a, a perfect game against Miami and a game that was a, a huge one for this team. Then they came out. And played terrible the next week. And yeah, I was just kind of just telling you that maybe they could make a fight in playoffs if they make it based on their offense. Like if their offense can turn it up, look really good. I think their defense is good enough to hang with teams to give their offense a chance. That offense, uh, once again, did not exist and is now becoming extremely worrisome. I, I think, I don't know, I think panic alarm 
you know, like ringing that red bell. It's got to be really close if we're not already there and kind of well past it. I mean, I don't understand what's happening. This team, I, I just, I, I don't know what the offense is doing. The Giants are not a good team. They're not a good defense. They're supposed to be one of the easiest teams to beat in the league. I mean, you and I just kind of talked about the line a little bit as I was re rehashing it and looking at it again that you know Vegas had the Bills beating the Giants by 15, and you mentioned they didn't even get 15 points total, so pretty hard to get that kind of spread. But the spread was there for a reason. They were supposed to go in, walk all over this team, and leave with an easy victory, and it was anything but easy. And again, mainly due to just a putrid offensive game plan system team. I, I don't know what they were doing out there. Yeah, I was on with Pat Moran of Talking Buffalo. I believe it was put out on Friday. So if you wanted to hear our thoughts on that one, you can go back and listen because a lot of it applies. And I think he said it perfectly that you have to come out of these next three games, the Bill or the Giants, the Patriots next week, and then the Bucks after that, that Thursday night game with three wins. So far, they're one for one, but I think everybody as a collective of Buffalo Bills fans would have wished that this game would have gone differently in a better way. Allen was 19 of 30 for 169, two touchdowns and one, two and 11 on the ground. James Cook actually had a solid game, 14 for 71, 5.1 a clip. Murray, 12 for 45, 3.8 a clip. Diggs had 10 receptions on 16 targets for 100 yards. And then the rest of the pass catchers went 9 for 14 with 69 yards and two touchdowns. And don't let the two touchdowns blur you. One of them was great. The other one was a great play design by Ken Dorsey. And that might be the only positive thing I say about him this entire show. The offense is just pathetic. I don't think there's another way to put it. They're absolutely pathetic. Their defense is just balling out the last two weeks, and the offense is giving them absolutely nothing. And Allen said it after the game. He definitely didn't want to be talking to reporters after the game, right after that night where he was just giving defense all the credit. Offense has got to do more. Well, duh. Duh, the offense has got to do more. You scored zero points the first three quarters. And I'm not going to put the whole responsibility on one particular person it's a group pathetic show right now the play calling is horrible the execution on the field is horrible the I I just don't understand how you can watch the game everybody up in the stands can watch the game know that things are going to be happening and you know the defense knows what's coming because everybody else around the world knows what's coming. When it's second and one, guess what, Phil? They're going to be in the shotgun formation. They're going to run it right up the middle, and they're not going to get it. I don't understand some of these concepts that Ken Dorsey is doing. And yes, a lot of times, I completely understand. I've said this multiple times. The coaches are not on the field. They can only take so much responsibility. But when you're under center and you can run the ball, but you're in shotgun and you can't run the ball, this offense can't get anything going right now. And they were finally getting things going when Josh Allen is under center. And the whole rumor is Josh Allen doesn't like being under center. He likes being the shotgun. Guess what? The shotgun ain't working right now. Get your hands under Mitch Morris's butt. Stay there. Hand off the ball or play play action all the time. I understand that the, they were under center a lot more often this game than they were in the previous five, but come on, it's working and you're going away from it. (laughs) They had what monster. I think cook had like a 14 yard run. And then the very next play, I believe Allen threw the interception because he was in shotgun. It's just, it's mind blowing and mind numbing that they continue to make the same mistakes over and over and over. And I understand I'm the idiot in the chair right now, but I'm in the idiot in the chair that wouldn't call a running play, a draw up the middle in shotgun on second and one. Cause I know it ain't going to work. Yeah. I mean, this is the, uh, a few times now we've seen things work and things not work. And the things that do work, they tend to move away from. And the things that do work, they like to hammer home and continue to use them despite them not working. I mean, you and I kind of talked about it a little bit while we were watching the game that Dorsey has called a few really good games this year. The offense has looked good a few times, and yet this kind of performance, and you look at it, you're like, what, what, like, how 
does the same offensive coordinator call an incredible game against Miami, a few other, you know, Vegas, Washington, all pretty solid offensive performances. And then you go up against a terrible Giants defense and you just have no answer for them. Like, it just doesn't make sense that the play calls are, like you said, just this weird. Like, they they go away from what works and just, again, just really go and drive home the things that don't. I mean, we've even seen, I know Kincaid wasn't in this game, not saying it's part of this game plan, but even the the 12 personnel that they were supposed to be using more and more this season has gotten less and less as the weeks have gone on. And that seemed to be working a little bit early on in the season. And then they are going away from it more and more, despite the reason that's kind of, you know, one of the reasons you drafted Kincaid was to use him and use Knox in these, you know, formations and get a little bit creative. And they're just moving farther and farther away from that kind of offense. And then this game, like you mentioned, the the offense, like when, when things went well, they just stopped doing them. And for the most part, the team just looked terrible. I mean, again, I know Mahomes is having a down year and Kansas City is still doing fine, but like they have no offensive weapons on that team, pretty much outside of Kelsey. I know Rice is slightly something, but for the most part, they have no wide receivers they use more than a couple times a game, and that's how their game plan works, and it's still working really well. I hate making these comparisons, but the Bills offense doesn't have a ton of playmakers, but they have enough playmakers on that team that you should be able to be doing better than they are. Like, Deontay Hardy is fine. Shakir's fine. Knox, Davis, Diggs. I mean, Morris came out of nowhere. But they have playmakers on this team that you should be able to scheme and get creative enough with that the offense looks, you know, has a lot of variables, looks different every single play, looks different every single drive, that you can mix things up and not just keep going through the same motions and be shut out by a bad defense for three straight quarters. Like how they weren't able to figure anything out until the fourth quarter seems ridiculous with the amount of talent that is supposedly on that offense. Yeah. I I keep seeing people say, Hey, they're sitting at four and two. They're only game out of AFC East because you have the tiebreaker over the Miami Dolphins. You know, look around the league. Chicago, or, um, Cincinnati's struggling. You got uh, Kansas City's offense doesn't look the same. All these, uh, you're going to run into spurts. Like, I'm tired of the excuses. Like, I, I'm I'm very much over the excuses. And again, I'm I'm I, I'm trying not to be that overcritical person that. You know, he's never played football in his life. He doesn't really know what he's talking about. I'm trying not to do that kind of stuff. But like how many of these years in a row can we keep coming up with excuses after excuses after excuses for this team? Like they can they you can say that, hey, there's still a high scoring offense. They just put up 14 points on the 28th ranked defense in the league. You didn't score until the fourth quarter. Like this team turns it on at the very last. I don't know what they do. To come out of these games, you said it after the Jaguars game that you have to start these games quicker. You had zero to the fourth quarter. It's just, you can't blame the excuse that we heard all last week. Jet lag, jet lag, jet lag. The offense, you know, short rest and all that kind of stuff. And I already explained that you and I went to Italy. We took one long nap and we were good. Where was the excuse this week for three quarters of just pathetic puking on yourself offense? Like, they couldn't have been jet lag this time. I, I think I tweeted out, hey... You do have to travel back from England, so maybe they're still jet lag. Let's see what their offense looks like next week versus New England. You know, we can still hammer home that point, the jet lag. It's just this offense is just – it's not creative. I, I, like I said, I, I give the creative play to Deontay Hardy and the, the creativeness that uh, uh, Ken Dorsey came up with that on play. That's great. I love it. Where are they? Why is that happening just now? Like, where was that all season? Like, where or was that all like last more, year? We've more been... throughout the game. Why is it right, that we've one been... play? Like, it was one play. Yes, it was a fantastic play. We love it. It was great. Do it more than once. Do anything. Right. Anything that's more exciting than the offense you're putting out there. It's just terrible. Like, you, sh- this team should be happy that so many fans are this critical after a win like this because... That means you have such high expectations. This team and the fan base has such high goals for this team. And 
it's coming into the season, at least for most of the people, and I'm sure there's a lot of people out there that still feel this way, is Super Bowl or bust. That's why people get so frustrated, a 14-9 win over the pathetic Giants who had 17 players on their injury report going into the game. It's just, it's it. the, the Bills literally won this game, and I think Jeremy White said this on WGR uh, on Monday morning. They won this game by a yard. Think about that. They came within a yard of losing to the New York Giants that had Tyrod Taylor and a bunch of no-name wide receivers playing. That's how close they came to losing this game and falling to 3-3. Three and three. And guess who's 3-3, three and three, Phil? The, Oak, the Las Vegas Raiders. The Raiders who just won a game with Brian Hoyer, they're also 3-3. Three and three. You would have been in company with them if by a yard. They got bailed out of this game. There was not roughing on the passer on Allen. Tyrod's call at the end of the first quarter to switch it from a pass to a run was stupid. They missed two field goals. The Bills tried in every single way to lose this game, and they couldn't. It's just, I I guess I have nothing else negative to say. I kind of want to try to talk to positives and then move on. But it's just, if the offense doesn't get right quickly, they are in for a world of hurt the rest of the season. It's just so lucky that they were facing the New York Giants because any other team, they would have gotten the doors blown off. I don't want to see them get right for one game either. Like, get right, right. It's get consistent, be yes. which is probably the biggest issue they're having this year. Is there's just no consistency. No matter who they're playing, the offense is just extremely hot and cold. The only consistency they've had, which is why they're 4-2, is the defense which we can switch over and talk about now. They played great, and I know Tyrod, backup QB, is in the defense in this game, should have looked really good, but that's kind of the thing that the offense couldn't do, that the defense was able to do. The offense was supposed to look really good in a game against a bad team. The defense was supposed to look really good in a game against a bad team, but the defense actually showed up and looked like they were playing a bad team, and they they were. I mean, Barkley came back, which is a big thing for the Giants. He ended up having a pretty decent game for them. Outside of that, they really didn't do much on offense, and that's because the defense looked really good. I mean, given what the defense has had to deal with, I think we're going to... I mean, this is this is your defense moving forward for the most part, and I think we saw a lot of positives from this I guess we will now say younger, inexperienced defense that they were able to put on the field. I mean, even Dane Jackson, one of your backup players, also out. So this team just is pretty low on their depth chart as far as who they need to have out there. And I think for the most part, they still looked really good. And a lot of these younger players that are going to need to step up into bigger roles seemed like they stepped up pretty well in this game. Yeah, they gave up four plays that I can remember that I think they would want back. And in a game, I don't care who your face, like Tyrod Taylor, he can throw a beautiful deep ball. Saquon Barkley, yes, first game back, but he's also a really good runner. I I, I get all that. You're, you're facing this kind of team, and you held them to nine points, like three field goals. That is incredible job because, yes, I understand that you're going against this lousy team that I already made excuses for, like 17. You didn't have your starting quarterback. You're, you were missing three offensive linemen, and another one went out. The one guy came in from the couch. He hadn't played in over a year, went from starting at left guard, having to go out to uh, left tackle. I get all that. But there were three or four plays, two big Barkley runs, and then two big uh, Slayton catches on both sidelines against Elam and uh, Benford. Those are the only plays that I really remember that you would want back. I mean, the team's missing so many stars. You also had players that weren't 100% in Miller, Rousseau, and Poyer. None of those guys are 100%. Bernard, he's he's a legit player, Phil. I, I came into the season, and I, I think I said it on Talking Buffalo, trying to remember who I had winning that middle linebacker position, but I ended up, you know, in the bold predictions, I had Dorian Williams coming back and I had him taking over the starting role in middle linebacker by the middle of the season. Bernard, he's a legit baller. And if you gave me the choice between Tremaine Edmonds and Bernard, which middle linebacker I would want, it's like neck and neck now. I think I would lean Bernard just because he makes more of those splash plays. But that's how far he's come in six games. I mean, Williams playing opposite of Bernard had a great game. You went with the rookie. He played... I think it was all but four snaps. Dodson came in and four snaps, I believe it was. 
he balled out. He was very good. I think there was maybe one or two. Uh, he had one bad drive that I think he would want back. Benford with one big, big pass breakup. Taron Johnson, he might be your best defender right now. And yes, you got away with a hold in the end. So Waller was doing it right back. So it was let him battle it out, see what comes down from it. And then the last thing here, I really, really want to see, and I didn't think I would ever say this because I was knocking on him for the first three years of his career, rightfully so. AJ Epinesa needs more snaps on defense. He needs to be more a part of that rotation. I don't know if he's going to get it now that Von Miller's coming back healthy and Floyd's balling out, but AJ Epinesa, something flipped in this year four, and he's been balling out ever since. As far as Tremaine and Bernardo, I, I think I do agree with you. This year, I just wanted to quickly look up the stats for fun. Uh, Bernard is looking at 57 total tackles. With two sacks, two fumble recoveries, and two interceptions, Tremaine is at 54 total tackles and only one fumble recovery. His first ever in his entire career, over 4,000 snaps, and he fell on it on Sunday. (laughs) And he has zero sacks, and I don't see in the stats real quick, there's no tackle for loss, but that's another thing that Bernard has been doing a really good job of uh, so far this season is tackles for loss. In this game alone, he had three and he led the Buffalo Bills defense. I do agree with you. Like you said, the splash plays are there, but even just what he's been able to do, I mean, Edmonds' big thing was just being able to tackle really, really well, and obviously he knew how to set up a defense. He's a good player. I'm not trying to, you know, say that Edmonds is terrible by any means. He's a good player, but Bernard, in the little bit of time that he's had already, I mean, he has more total tackles than Edmonds this year and has more splash plays and sacks and tackles for loss. So, I do agree. I think, I mean, I I would love, I don't know. I don't know if the Bills got lucky that Bernard turned out this well, or if they knew ahead of time that this is the kind of player they were at least hoping he would turn into. It's hard to say, but for the most part, I think he's done a really, really good job stepping into that role. And I think the loss of Edmonds has pretty much been covered completely almost by Bernard. And again, Bernard's still a younger player learning how to play. And hopefully we're seeing him kind of just at the beginning of what he will end up being able to do. And he's playing really well. As far as other players, I mean, Elam's the other one that we're kind of keeping a close eye on. I think he played better in this game than he did in previous games. I don't think he looked great. I think he looked like a depth cornerback, which is depressing for a first round pick. But I think he looked a little bit better in this game. But at the same time, you're going up against a backup QB and one of the Worst receiving cores in the entire league, so you should look like an all-star in this game, and he looked okay, which is concerning. I do, I don't know, I I think his, I mean, the the Bills are going through a lot of injuries, but I think his time with Buffalo is getting very, very limited. Yeah, I said it the other day, I've never thought I would be hoping for Dane Jackson to come back healthy, (laughs) and that's saying a lot because of everything I said about him last year. Yeah, and... With that, uh, I'm going to ask you an interesting question. I'm ready. All right. Given the Bills record that everybody is all excited about, 4-2, and two, which isn't really that exciting of a record given you lost to the Jaguars. But in general, they're sitting at 4-2. and two. You just saw the performance against the Giants. You know what this team currently looks like. You have your own, we'll say, reservations about being a Super Bowl team. You're Brandon Bean. Are you making moves to go all in this year as much as possible? Or are you sitting with this team and just kind of playing it out? And if they do great, they do great. And if they don't do great, they don't do great. But are you willing to give up assets to make a big push for the season and try to make some kind of splash trade, whether on the offense or defensive side of the ball before the trade deadline? I mean, I would love to bring in another cornerback. I'm hesitant to bring anything in on the offensive side because you just did that. You just brought in Kincaid. You just brought in Sherfield. You just brought in Hardy. Last year, you brought in Shakir. They don't use them. Like, they're not using those players. Yeah. Or at least Allen doesn't trust the players that are out there. So why would I add more pieces to the offense that aren't going to be used? Why would I use an asset to bring in a player that's not going to be used? So... If there was a player on the defensive end or a defensive side of the ball, a cornerback, defensive, sorry, not defensive, defensive side of the ball. I'm trying, John. I 
I would look at the cornerback position just because, you know, if Dane Jackson or Benford do go down again, you're stuck with Elam starting again. And I think you're going to have to lean on this defense because your offense just can't shake. If the offense can, you know, get more consistent and be more creative and be this juggernaut that we all think and have seen them be in this season, I, I think they're set. Like, use Davis, how he's supposed to be used. Use Hardy in the in, uh, the, like a gadget role if you want to use him that way. Use Kincaid in the middle of the field and actually throw him deep shots. It's just, and then Knox, use your hands, man. You got to catch these, these balls. But, you know, if there was a move to be made, I think cornerback's the spot to be using it. I just, I, you're not replacing Tredavious White. You're not replacing Daquan Jones. You're not replacing Matt Milano. So you're just looking to upgrade from the positions or the players that you currently have in those positions. I think that's possible. It's just, I, I just, I'm hesitant on the offensive end because of everything I said. Yeah. I wonder if like the biggest thing I could see them doing is shipping Elam off, trying to use his first round draft pedigree to a team that's yeah, not going to make playoffs and just get a, Older, you know, more solidified cornerback and, you know, maybe like Elam plus a draft pick for someone who's already established on a team that's not going anywhere and just hope that that team sees him as someone who can continue to develop and is still young and is a first round draft pick for a reason and kind of like boost that up and get, you know, an older solidified cornerback on a team that's not going anywhere and maybe Elam plus a draft pick and ship him out and get someone a little bit better in that's more of a, a win now kind of situation. That's really the only thing I could see them doing, it would be nice to me if they added someone on offense, but at the same time, I completely agree with you. They don't use the guys they do have, and if they are using them, they don't use them very well. So I would rather see the talent that they do have, I think, is good enough, and I just think they need to find a way to put it all together and consistently. Yeah, just fingers crossed they don't watch uh, tape. And they don't yeah, watch exactly. Kyrie oh, Elam sure. versus the Jags. So yeah, just uh, <laughs> show them uh, think, last year end of the yeah. season. Be like, this is what he yeah. could show them the, be. Show them the Cincinnati playoff game. Exactly. He played outstanding there. The Miami game played outstanding there. Uh, this year didn't happen. You nope. didn't see him at all this nope. year. But yeah, uh, final one o'clock game in a very long time on Sunday versus New England. Must win. I said this was a must win. He did get the win. Again, how are we this angry at a win? It's because you put up 14 points on the Giants when you were favored literally by came 15. came down to the last it's play of the game. Literally that's a yard. Why. <laughs> I mean, with no time on the clock, that's what it came down to. And please, for the love of everything in this world, I'm a man with high blood pressure. I can't take these type of games, Phil. I need just a blowout, please. Just If you can't blow out the New England Patriots that – Literally, finally scored a touchdown for in three games last week. I I don't know what to tell you. It's they need to just just absolutely destroy New England to put me at ease. Like it, like I don't know, thirty five nothing at halftime, and I can breathe easy on a Sunday, please. So we'll move forward to the Buffalo Sabers before we dive into the two games. A uh, bit of news dropped right before the season kicked off, and we weren't able to talk about it yet. Phil Owen Power is around to stay. For a long, long time, seven years, eight point three five million dollars a year. Uh, Phil, I don't know if you know this. Sabers have two of the top fifteen highest paid defensemen. Dalene's number two. Power comes in at number fifteen now. Now they have Dalene locked up until twenty or uh, uh, 2031-2032 season. Power the year uh, before that, thirty and thirty one, and then Tage Cousins and Samuelson twelve to twenty twenty nine and twenty twenty. Uh, I'm, 2030 these uh 20 this is going to be a long century phil these numbers these are going to kill me but uh what's your thought on the deal and how they continue to lock up their young core did you mean long decade is that what you were no like long century like until it gets to 21 30 like all those like this i hate this 20 thing That's fair. Um, I think they have a what looks like six year window to, uh, you know, make playoffs, win a Stanley Cup before you have to repay all of these players on their next deals, which are going to be very interesting, risky deals. And luckily, we don't have to worry about them for a long time. And I think you have two of the highest paid defensemen because you drafted two defensemen number one overall in separate years. So that'll probably happen uh, when you when you have that kind of draft ability. But to me, the power one is confusing for Owen Power and very 
great for the Buffalo Sabres. I'm very Agreed. shocked that Power, seeing what Darlene literally just did this offseason, what he was able to make, I don't, I'm surprised Power wasn't willing to more bet on himself and at least do some kind of bridge deal, some three year, four year deal for the same amount of money. But it's very interesting to me that he was willing to have such a long term contract. And I mean, it's still a lot of money. Don't get me wrong. I mean, it's still, like you said, he's still a top 15 highest paid defenseman. So it's not like he's getting nothing. He's still one of the highest paid defensemen in the entire league. So it's still a lot of money. But seeing what a very similar situation in Dalene, again, a number one overall draft pick, power is the same thing, still very young, probably going through pretty similar growing pains that Dalene did. But now Dalene has solidified himself as one of the best in the league. And looks incredible. I think Power is on that same path for sure. And looks already pretty good this year and looked fine last year for a younger player. So just interesting that he wouldn't take a bigger bet on himself. But as far as for the Buffalo Sabres, I think it's incredible that you were able to get that long of a deal for that young of a player who's going to be really, really good for the next seven years. Yeah, I started on Talking Buffalo also that it's a steal of a deal for the Buffalo Sabres because currently he's the 15th highest defenseman being paid. But by the end of this contract, he might be in the 30s, the 40s. Same with Darlene. Like at the end of their deals, this is going to be a steal in my opinion. I I think I'm the same position as you where I thought this was going to be a bridge deal similar to Darlene where, hey, you get a bit more money for three years. Then by the time it comes up, you're going to get paid even more. I think him signing this seven-year deal, it shows how bought in he is that, hey, I could have waited to decide this bridge deal, but I have faith in what this core is, and I want to be locked into this long-term and see where this goes, and I believe in this process, and that's, it's still like, I've been a Buffalo Sabres fan my entire life. Like, I've told a story that I was the, the kid dressed in the hockey gear in my basement emulating Dominic Ashik. I'm still in those years where they lose their star players, where the star players don't. I mean, heck, even Jack Eichel, like that whole situation, Sam Reinhardt, all those those players that just wanted out the door. I'm still in that mindset. I'm still not in the mindset where all these players are bought in and want to be playing for the Buffalo Sabres. It's weird to me. I can't get fully there, but I love the deal. Like, I'm absolutely in favor of this. I've been in favor of this since they signed Samuelson and Tage Thompson two years ago or two off seasons ago, where it was just, Hey, sign him now. This is what good teams do. They identify the core of their group, sign him to team friendly deals. So they have more money to play with for the, the bottom half of their roster moving forward. So you can sign those veteran final pieces to add to a championship team. That's exactly what winning teams do. This is exactly what the Buffalo Sabres did. Just sadly that didn't start the season how we thought they would they dropped the opening game the hype was there you know the whole rj video was unbelievable the tribute to him rj way that we're going to be passing every time we go to the buffalo bandits games and any sabers games that we go to whole intro was unbelievable the lead up to the game was unbelievable and they dropped it five to one to the rangers paterka was the only goal scorer levi 26 of 30 saves shots were 31 to 25 in the sabers and then saturday you know, you had to try to bounce back. You went to New uh, New York Islanders, lost this one three to two. Greenway and Middlestad with the goals. Levi twenty six of twenty nine saves. Shots were twenty nine to twenty eight in favor of the Islanders. So Phil, let's try to build this into like a collective. We can talk about bits and pieces of each game if we want. But like overall, in those two games, are there any things you want to take from from what you learned, what you liked, what you didn't like as a collective? Sure, I think the Two games were pretty much night and day of the yeah. same team. I mean, I think they came out fine. I don't think they really came out uninspired by any means, but the Rangers came out absolutely on fire, playing like every single point mattered. And I think that's really good for a young team to see. I mean, the biggest story of that night was the block shots. It was absolutely ridiculous trying to watch that game, watching every single shot pretty much be blocked. I mean, 23 block shots, 13 in the third. And that just, more than anything, yes, the block shots are impressive, but more than anything, it shows how much the Rangers were willing to sell out for the first game of the year and the first win of the year. I mean, that's just what really, really good teams do is that they go out there and are willing to do that much damage to their to themselves on night one. But the, the big flip of the script in the second game, I mean, 
the Islanders, they were down 2 nothing. They didn't give up. It was a big part of who they were last year, was kind of getting down early, but then not giving up and not quitting and trying to fight back in. They did exactly that, you know, tied it up 2-2. Looked really good. Looked like they honestly had the chances to win that game. I think they got a little bit unlucky with how it all went down. But I think they had the chance to beat the Islanders. I think they looked like the better team than the Islanders. And just the, the way they were able to switch from game one to game two, I thought looked really good. And then Levi, to me, in both games looked fine. I don't think he's looked bad. I think for the most part, he's still making the really big saves that you were asking for for the goalies for all of last season, where they just didn't have that goalie that would bail out the defense and make those incredible saves to kind of push the team to a victory. But the offense hasn't really been there to back him up. But for the most part, I thought he's played really good. And a lot of the goals he's already let in are not really his fault. I don't think he's given up too many soft goals, which I think is good to see from him through two games. Yeah, I think Levi's played about what was expected of a goalie that played in 11 career games so far that's straight out of college that played no AHL. I think the I was thinking about this after game one when, you know, it was 5-1 and he, he lets in those goals and all that kind of stuff for us. I think the worst thing that happened to him was how good he was for that nine game stretch last week last year because the expectations for him that were already very high went through the roof and <laughs> like it was unimaginable he couldn't have kept that pace so I think the worst thing that he did was be that good last year so I definitely think the biggest thing he needs to work on is his rebounding and again 11 games in, plenty of season to go, plenty of career to go for him too. It's just there's been a lot of juicy rebounds that he's given up. I think that's the biggest thing he needs to work on. But neither of these games are the goalie's fault. Neither of these games are really like you can't put it on Levi. I think a lot of it is still there's too much just skating around looking at the puck and not understanding your surroundings. And it's something that I can't understand players reach this level and they're still that way. And I use this, I, I hate using this player as an example, but it's the biggest one that stood out. They were on the penalty kill versus the Rangers and Peyton Krebs is standing in front of the goalie when the puck's in the corner. He has zero clue, absolutely zero clue, that there's a Rangers player standing right behind him. If that puck pops up to a Ranger, he has no idea that guy's ready for a one-timer to blast it by Levi. Those are the examples. Like The, the second example, Yoki Haru, that big rebound that Levi gave up in the first game versus the Rangers for the first goal. Yoki Haru has no idea, zero idea, zero clue that there's a defender or a, a forward skating right behind him and the pass just goes right in front of him, taps right in by Levi. Those are the things that I can't stand because those should be the number one rule is always know where the players are on the ice, always know where the puck is, and you can't catch yourself puck gazing. And that's what happens too much with this team. There's too much just skating around, not getting back that that uh that goal that I think it was the first goal in the uh, the Islanders game where Clifton kind of gets tripped. I'm not going to blame the referees for that. It should have been stayed in the offensive end to begin with. But you can see nobody's getting back on defense whatsoever. There's no hustle to get back. That's one of the other things that bothers me is this this early in the season you have fresh legs. You should be getting back. The PK does look better in the second game. They were they were better in the second game versus the Islanders. They went 100% in that one. But the PK, uh, game one, looked terrible. With the block shots in game one, and I don't know, I'm kind of just rattling off all over the place. Everything's just coming to my mind at once. But I think a lot of those block shots, you're the Rangers were getting too much credit for that because the Buffalo Sabres just kept doing the same thing over and over and over again. The power play in the first game was just putrid. It was horrible. There was too slow passing. They just were shooting from the same angles and Rangers were like, okay, they're going to shoot here again. I'll drop and block this shot again. Why not fake the shot, have them drop, and then you can skate around them and get something to go. It's just, I hope the panel of the power play gets a little bit more creative, faster passes. The stars need to be playing like stars. The top two lines have stunk. The third line has been unbelievable right now. And then it's just, it's been too slow of a start in game one. It was better in game two, but it, again, 80 more games to go, a lot to work on, but Phil, I don't think Benson's going anywhere after nine games. He has been one of their best players. I think Greenway's been their best player. I think Benson's been number two. Yeah, he's looked really good. I mean, the the big thing that we talked about the whole preseason with him and him even getting this opportunity was him not looking lost in yep. the NHL. And, you know, again, that was preseason. 
he looked really good. The rest of the team in preseason kind of looked like they were phoning it in a little bit, but you're still not against other teams' best players in preseason, so it's hard to really get a gauge of how good he was. But in these first two games, Benson's looked really good. He has not looked outmatched. He has not looked out of place. He, for being an 18-year-old, and again, like you mentioned, he looks like an 18-year-old, and it's not really a shot at him, but he's he's a little guy. He's not a, a big power 18-year-old forward. He's a smaller forward, but he's playing like one of the more physical players on the entire team. He's getting beat up after plays. He's going in, you know, into the boards, winning puck battles. He's playing really physical and playing really strong on the puck. I mean, yes, you saw him get knocked down. I think it was the Islanders game where he got kind of trucked over two times, but that both those times it was after winning the puck and both of those times ended up leading to a goal. So He's doing everything he needs to, and even though he's not the biggest guy and he still needs to you know, grow into himself a little bit, but he's still playing like a really big player, and he's still trying to be as physical as he can be, and it's working really well for him. He has not looked out of place at all so far. And then the other player you mentioned, Greenway, I know he was pretty solid last year when they brought him in, and you know we were hoping that an offseason with Granado would kind of unleash him a little bit more. And my goodness, he looks really, really good through two games. I mean, he's that big grinder, powerful forward, but at the same time, he's making really good stick skill type moves. I mean, the goal he scored where he was, you know, puck dangling a little bit to get it around. I have no idea. I, I forgot his name. The Islanders goalie. Who, this is Sturkin. There it is. I was say it's a weird one. I knew it and then forgot it. But to get around him and the way he did it and just to fight off Defenders that were draped oh, no, all that over might be him. Shirokin. What was that? I think Islanders is Igor Shirokin. Who's who's the I Rangers? Shesterkin is um, first game. Yeah, um, the Rangers. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think well, I got they, it backwards. I think uh, Shirokin is the Islanders. I think he's the one that he deked around. They sound very similar. They do, and they're both very good. I don't know they why he had to start against like the two <laughs> top goalies in the league. It wasn't fair. That's true. Um, but yeah, Greenway's looked looked really good. And I've been really impressed with him and Benson. Like you said, that top line, the top players for the Sabres need to get moving. That Rangers game, I don't know if they understood where the, the net was. Um, they were either, like you mentioned, hitting Rangers players soccer. or just launching it 90 feet wide. I did, some of the shots they had were atrocious in that first game where they just were missing everything. They looked very just... A lot better against the Islanders. I'm not going to say really, really good, but they looked better. But like you mentioned, the top forwards, top two lines need to get moving. Yeah, game one, they had a lot of uh, Alexi Zitniks on the <laughs> the ice, if you remember him. Number 44 defenseman who uh, had a killer, killer slap shot, but never hit the net. And then uh, like Greenway, finally healthy. That also helps a bit. His shoulders finally healed. But Phil... They got uh, three games that we're going to be talking about on the next show. Again, we're recording on Monday night, so we don't have the Tuesday game. They also play on Thursday, and then they got a Saturday game as well. So we'll talk about all those as they are playing on the following Monday night on our next show. Phil, we'll move forward to the Buffalo Blitz. Well, actually, it's not Buffalo Blitz. It's Fantasy Blitz. Uh, again, we're recording on Monday night, so I don't have my player from last week, Dak Prescott. Hopefully he's going to be in the top 10 this week. I have no idea. I'll update you on the next week. And then, uh, you had Jordan Addison who was ranked 26 going in. He finished 27. So fresh start. We both look like we're winning as long as Herbert and, uh, Allen don't go absolutely bananas on me. We both survived guillotine as long as Allen doesn't, you know, go out on Goose the me. first drive. <laughs> and, uh, Phil, who was your week seven fantasy blitz player? I'm going to a little bit of a homer pick for me. Not the Bills, but for you and me. He's a, a player on both of our teams in separate leagues. I'm going with Saquon Barkley. In his first game back, we just witnessed what he was able to do. He had 23 rushing attempts in his first game back from an ankle injury, which seems insane. Uh, I was thought and kind of assumed they would ease him in a little bit. They did not. They just kind of used him... A ton, uh, but he ended up with 93 rushing yards, four catches on, I think it was, yeah, four catches on for five yards, so his catches didn't really do anything, but again, 23 rushing attempts and four catches, so 27 times he was part of this offensive attack. 
I think Daniel Jones could be back next week. It looks like it's possibly still up in the air. So there's a chance he's back against Washington, who are giving up an average of 129 rushing yards per game, and they have given up four rushing touchdowns on the year. Barkley is going to be a major part of this offense. It doesn't look like he came out of this game injured at all. He looked okay at the end of the game. He looked obviously fresh because he's been injured, but he also looked explosive. So it didn't look like he was, you know, like tending to the ankle at all. It looked like he was just 100% good to go. I mean, he rattled off a few massive runs against the Bills and looked fast. He looked powerful and he looked just good. So he currently is ranked very, very low because he hasn't played much this year, but I think he's going to have a good game against Washington now that he's back. I think the Giants will continue to lean on him like a ridiculous workhorse back because he's pretty much their entire offense. All he needs is the offensive line to just get a tad bit healthy because a lot of those plays he had no yeah, chance. Yeah, they'll have to scheme him a with, little uh, bit more. Yeah, a little bit. Uh, Dable doesn't give a blank if you're hurt or not. He uh, said three games off, you're giving you everything. So I went with Jalen Waddle. A uh, little bit of a pick here, too, because he missed a game, and the other game he was fully coming back from the concussion. He's currently ranked 40th, but plays on one of the best, and I'm going to just say it, they are the best offensive team in the league right now. Uh, two weeks ago, 5 for 10, 35 yards and a touchdown. This last week, 7 for 9, 51 yards and a touchdown. Uh, they're taking out Philly Phil. So, uh, like that Philly, Phil, uh, Philly's going through some injuries themselves. Hill is making it easy for all the other wide receivers. It could be an absolute slug fest. And I want any kind of pieces I can get from the Miami dolphins right now. And that includes Jalen Waddle. They're going to score a ton of points. Nobody can seem to stop them except for the Buffalo bills. And, uh, one of these times it's got to be Jalen Waddle's turn over Tyree kills. You can share a little bit Hill. It's not fair how much receiving work you're getting and leaving Waddle with just the scraps. I know the scraps are still really, really good. It's like a family of 12. They bought for a family of 15 and he's still eating well, but he's not getting enough. So uh, just give Waddle a little bit more. Um, that's all I'm asking. Phil, uh, let's hope that we uh, survive this Monday night because the game's starting in like five minutes and I'm already uh, butt clinching a little bit and uh, not happy about it. So we'll move on to our final segment here. Before we get into the main segment of our Buffalo Bandits talk, they signed another player, Phil. Uh, Alex Q, if that name sounds familiar, it's because uh, Andrew Q also plays in the league. He signed for our one-year daily 6'4", 215, 24 years old. Like I said, brother of Andrew Q. He spent last year with the camp with Georgia. Two years at Weber International University, 61 goals, 71 assists, 78 points, or 17 assists, 78 points in 25 games, 21 goals in 2021, 40 in 2022. I think it's just another big body to camp. Uh, again, roster space is very tight and limited, but he's a big, big body, and he has a little bit of experience being in Georgia's camp last year. Yeah, when we first signed him, I thought it was Andrew, and uh, yep. I was very a lot confused. Of people did. I mean, again, both both A's. It's the whole Orleman situation all over again with uh, multiples of them. But yeah, so I thought I thought it was Andrew at first quickly realized it was not and it was Alex and I was like okay who is this but I mean overall like you said likely a camp body but a big camp body a younger player 61 17 and 78 and 25 is really good so he's definitely got some talent like you mentioned he has a little bit of NLL experience being in George's camp last year so overall probably just camp body but I mean anything can kind of happen and I think it's good to see not just camp bodies, but the bandits trying to look at as many players as possible, given how many injuries they had on the offensive side last year. So I think getting these guys into camp, kind of getting them familiar with this system, if anything happens during the year and these players aren't signed by other teams, maybe you can sign them to a contract if you have some of these players going on, you know, IR or if anyone, hopefully this does not happen, I'll knock on board in a second, but if anyone goes out for the entire year and these players are just kind of sitting there in free agency, having them in camp, understanding your offensive system a little bit and just getting a really close look at some of these guys like Alex Q could just give them a leg up if they absolutely need someone. And there's a chance any of these players could make a big enough impact to make the team. I mean, it's it's a far, far, uh, far shot, long shot, but it is very possible. Yeah, Phil came up with a fun topic to we're going to talk about on next week's show. So if you're interested in players similar to Alex Q, the the 
deep bubble guys, the the new guys on the roster. Stay tuned for next week's episode because we're going to dive deep into those. So our segment for the Bandits in the NLL on this show is a lot has happened in this offseason. Training camps are kicking off towards the end of this month, if not the start of next month. So, Phil, we kind of wanted to go over our favorite or our most memorable or the best things or however you want to frame this, the five things that happened in this offseason that made the most impact, not just for us, but the league as a whole. I'm going to let you kick off number one here. Yeah, number one was uh, conflicting for sure, but it is the unified standing system that they are implementing this year. You and I kind of went a little bit back and forth on it, and if we liked it or not, I'm still a little bit hesitant for sure. Um, but overall, I think it's really, really good for the game more than anything, which is obviously what the NLL is trying to do. They're trying to grow the game, and I think getting a chance to play every single team once whether it's home or away gives the fans of every single team a chance to look at every single other team. And like we've mentioned before, it gives you an opportunity to see the stars that, you know, used to be on what was formerly the West, you know, the bandits will now get a a good look at a lot of the players out West who are just stars of the entire NLL, but teams that we don't really know as much about or don't care as much about because they're out West and they don't really matter until playoffs for the most part, unless the bandits are directly playing them. But now with them playing every single team at least once, you get a chance to see everybody all the time. So that's a really interesting thing that the the uh, NLL was able to do. And then just the way the battle for playoffs is going to be literally season long. There is no East or West. There's no, you know, the West is doing really poorly, like we've seen in the past where half of their league is just right around 500 and you're looking at the East where the top three are doing really well and just kind of looking over at the West, like, okay, that, you know, side of things looks a little bit easier to be on, but this now with the unified standings, everybody is fighting against everybody. And it's going to be a really interesting season long grind. That's going to be tough for a lot of these teams that aren't used to it. Yeah. I've said my piece about this. Uh, There's not much more I can add to it from what you said. I'm just excited to have the, rest of the fan base of the NLL learn more about the skill around the entire league. And the only thing I'm upset about is how much more work this is going to make for us. Uh, I don't like work. That's why I'm here. I didn't do well in school. I don't like work. And uh, I'm going to do it for all of you out there. So you're welcome. I accept Venmo and checks and cold hard cash. So uh, yeah, send it my way. Number two, And this one broke on Monday. There's been rumors, and it's been building up to this, but it's been officially official on Monday. Lacrosse is back in the Olympics for the first time in a very long time. It will be part of the 2028 games in L.A. It will be sixes. This will be the sixth time. It's part of the Olympics. And like I said, first time since 1948. But in 1948, there were not playing for medals. You have to go back to 1908 for the last time it was a medal event. It's going to be sixes, 30-second shot clock. It's going to be played outdoors. Sixes are a bit different than the PLL and the NLL. It is all about there's no positions. It's constantly running. All six players out there are going to be runners or a goalie. It's it's nonstop action. I think the bigger thing, it's less about like the sixes and less about the the players that are going to be playing in this again, it's five years from now. So you're going to be thinking, Oh, Matt Vince can be playing this. Matt Vince is going to be like 47. And I don't think there's, he could play. (laughs) There's a very good possibility that he, they could phone him for this. It's just, you got to think about it in that frame of mind where this isn't happening next year. This is five years from now. So there's going to be players that are going to be playing in sixes that are still in college. They might still be in high school right now. So it's later down the road. It's less about all that. It's more about getting this sport that we love, that we want to see continue to grow. Again, this is what I was saying all last year when it was getting on ESPN+. Plus. You're getting this sport and these players in front of people that typically wouldn't see this sport. They're going to fall in love with it. I think I saw there's 90 countries that play lacrosse around the world now. You're going to see more people. It's not just about... Uh, it's It continues like building off of that. You're, you're getting this into homes that people wouldn't see this, but also... 
if people grow attached to this and kids want to play this sport, you're going to see more money invested in the sport. You're going to see, you know, uh, uh, more uh, sponsorships for this. You're going to see more clinics for this. You're going to see just so much more attention to the sport and more eyes on it. It's going to help grow the sport. It's going to help the NLL. It's going to help the PLL. It's going to help all the smaller leagues, the summer leagues, the the box leagues, all those kind of things, just because it's back in the Olympics. The Olympics is like the biggest thing for sports and because it only happens once every four years, getting lacrosse back in this is monumental. Like we were going back and forth, whether this should be number one, just because how big it is, but because it's five years from now, we put it at number two, but I can't uh, over, I can't understate just how important it is for this as a whole to have this back in the Olympics for the first time as a medaled event in 115 years. Yeah. Like you said, I think the, Interesting thing thinking about it for the now, like like right right now in 2023, is that even some of these players like Dane, who are getting currently they're fine. Currently they that you know he's absolutely in his prime. He's around 30 31, years old, yep. looking great. But again, like you said, that's five years from now. So I think who's going to make the teams and everything and make it up is you know when you're thinking about it from an NLL standpoint of just who from this league might make it then it's very hard to yep. even really try to project or even come close to projecting. I mean, players like Jeff Teat, most likely he's still crazy young. He's going to be really good. He'll likely be in it. But again, five years from now, anything can happen. So I think it's weird to think about the, you know, trying to kind of link the two together between the now and the then, but more than anything, it's just really, really exciting for the sport. And like you said, it'll grow the sport likely uh, quite a bit. Quite a bit. So very exciting for lacrosse. Number three, Phil, is all you. Yeah, number three is pretty massive. Uh, I don't know if it's, uh, I think it's arguably evenly massive for the Buffalo Bandits as it is for the entire NLL. And that is Matt Vince coming back for two more years. Josh Burns said it best when he said it that, you know, the entire league is probably saddened by this news. I would likely agree that uh, with that sentiment. Vince has been just absolutely dynamite for the Buffalo Bandits, and they finally got the championship he was looking for. And I think in the offseason, there were a lot of uneasy feelings about whether he would return or not. Again, he came to Buffalo. I mean, players always do this, but you could tell that he was determined to try to get a championship for this Buffalo Bandits team. It's been way too long. He uh, officially completed his goal of getting this team a championship. He was a massive part of that championship run and that entire season just to get first place overall wasn't injured pretty much for any of it. So he was a a just huge staple to that entire season on the championship run. And it was just really uneasy if he was going to hang it up and just kind of ride off into the sunset, having arguably the greatest goalie NLL career of all time and ending on another championship or if he was going to come back. But he did decide to come back and not only come back, but come back for two more years. So Really, really exciting news for the Bandits. Not so much for the rest of the league, but not only to get him back this year, but to get him back for two years, knowing he's going to be part of this team for two years, their championship window, which was likely going to be open anyway, but now is pretty much cemented open for the next two years as long as he remains healthy. And we have yet to see any sense of decline in his talent and his ability since we've pretty much started you know, watching him when he originally came on the Bandits was 2018 he's been with the Bandits. So since then, I don't really think his talent has gone down at all, which seems insane for him to hold the high standards that he has, but I don't really think we've seen a dip. And until we do, I think he's just going to remain one of the best, if not the best goalie in the entire league and a huge part of this Buffalo Bandits team. Number four for the biggest things that happen in the sport, the NLL, the Bandits this offseason, is uh, something that happened out West. And now because of the unified standings, which was our number one, this definitely affects the Buffalo Bandits. Kurt Malowski goes from Calgary to Vancouver, takes over as head coach and GM. I think we both went into the offseason. We noticed the UFAs. We noticed the RFAs. We were like, okay, there's not a ton of big names out there. There's, There's a few. I mean, you think about Georgia, there was a couple of big names, players on Georgia, Shane Jackson, you know, uh, um, Stephen Keogh was out there. You had Dan, uh, Kevin Crowley was out there. There were a few bigger names out there, but a lot of it was just like, I can see these guys going back. 
Kurt Malowski was like, uh, hold my drink. I'm going to shake up this league. And I think it was the biggest shakeup in this offseason was him leaving Calgary and going to Vancouver, not just because of what it did to the two franchises. It's what it did to the whole league because all these players were like, you know, I might want to go play for the Warriors. Now, Matt Beers goes there. Kevin Crowley goes there, Ryan Dilks goes there, John Lintz, Jackson Subak, Adrian Solomon. They drafted and signed Owen Grant from 2022, Brandon Lady from 2023, Connor O'Tooley from this year. This team is made up of young guns and veteran pieces. Kurt Malowski does not go there and just go, hey, we're going to retool and rebuild and slowly get back onto the ground. No, he's like, okay, we're going to win now and for the future. He shook up this league just by simply going you know, I don't know if I think Calgary is a bit north of Vancouver. I'm going to guess by that. I'm just going to go a little bit south to Vancouver, shake up this whole league because this offseason has been a little bit too boring for me. And uh, the players were like, yeah, I want to go play for him and went and just shook up this whole league. It went it went from what you and I thought was going to be a nice, relaxing like, hey, uh, he resigned here. Hey, he resigned here to, oh, Jesus, this whole league is completely different now. And then the whole league was like, yeah, we're going to, you have no idea what's going to be coming. And then the unified standings. But Kurt Malowski was the first one to start it. He was like, okay, here's my drink. And then the whole league was like, here's a whole liter of soda that we're going to dump on you. For the record, Calgary is uh, northeast of Vancouver. Nailed it. Nailed it. If you take, um, I'm not even going to attempt to understand Canadian roads, but if you take uh, the BC1 West, it's going to take you about 10 hours and 37 minutes via car. But if you go through the Crow's Nest Highway, uh, BC3 West, it's going to take you closer to 14 hours. So, Yeah, but there's a lot of traffic. You haven't factored that in. Those those BCs are... uh known to have a lot of traffic i have no yeah idea. I, I mean personally i wouldn't want to take the crow's nest highway uh you Sounds know we're going to stay more north and avoid the crow's nest vancouver is a little bit above seattle it's it's up up in that corner of the united states i guess it's it's just above washington calgary oh, I heard is was, uh, was correct. yeah calgary is more middle-ish but still not very middle but yeah so he went uh he went south by a smidgen and then way west. Um, I was right. That's all I heard. Yeah, you were right. Nice job. Um, but agreed. I think the bigger thing with this is exactly what you mentioned uh, hidden in there is that with the unified standings, this is a big deal to the bandits as well. Previously, before the unified standings, when we kind of were finding out about this and, you know, just what was going on, we were like, all right, for the west, that's a, a pretty big deal. Now it's a big deal for the bandits as well. So, I mean, what he was able to bring over and just the moves he made since coming to Vancouver, pretty incredible that, uh, like we, we, we know what he means to Calgary and how good of a coach he is for the NLL, but to have the power to lure that many players over to Vancouver, pretty impressive. Like you said, one of the bigger off season moves and off season moves. Once he got to Vancouver, there's the continuation of moves that flowed after he was named head coach there. For number five, this is uh, PK's B team that he is still in love with and uh, will be forever. Toronto also had an interesting offseason themselves. Mark Matthews, Chris Bushy, and Dan Littner all traded to Toronto. Dan Dawson retired. Steve Keogh signed to Rochester. Zach Manns was traded to Saskatchewan. But those three forwards that we mentioned at the top, Matthews, Bushy, and Lintner, added to Schreiber, Craig, and they re-signed Corey Small, who I think we were both secretly hoping he wouldn't go back because he had a pretty solid season, but he is back there as well. They have a little bit retooled and a little bit better offensive game plan and just a little bit better offense that they're going to be looking at this season. We know what their defense can do. We know what Nick Rose can do. They are very, very solid on the back end. Their offense has been much better in recent years, but still obviously not able to get past the Buffalo bandits. And I think these kind of moves are the moves that a team that knows they're in the championship window, but knows they need to make moves in order to get past a team that has shut them down in the East year after year after year. I think they finally made, I I don't, we, I mean, you know, time will tell if it was the correct moves, but I think they made big moves to finally make a, Really big push to try to get past the Bandits again. No longer in the East, so the unified standings kind of takes away that 
Bandits-Toronto East Division battle, but we will see it throughout the season, and it'll still be really interesting. And now, I mean, the the hatred between the two teams, whether in the East or Unified, it will still be there, and it's going to be some some big games against them, two this year, and not three like it has been for the last couple of years. Yeah, we'll pick our standings and the playoffs and all that kind of stuff later in November. But I'll just say like this, um, as somebody that covers the Bandits and is a fan of the Bandits and all that kind of stuff, I'm I'm happy. Personally, I'm I'm happy with the, the one through eight standings because that means that, that that's a chance that you see Toronto and Buffalo in the finals. And uh they I thought they were scary last year, Phil. They added Matthews Bushy and Lintner. I'm terrified. But at the same time, the Bandits uh, blew them out. Oh, they look, they're, yeah, yeah, I, I understand that. It's just like <laughs> Toronto was like, we see what you did. We're going to raise you and uh, see if we can uh, go all in and take it from you. But, uh, yeah, this, these were the top five things that we came up with that we thought were the biggest changes or the most impactful from this NLL offseason. So with that, Phil, Shutting it down. I'm angry because Justin Herbert just threw a touchdown pass to Keenan Allen, and my opponent has both of them, and I was up by 70, and the lead just got cut down to like 52. So, Phil, is there anything else you really add to this show before I ran my head through the wall? I would like to say that with that information, it sounds like I survived guillotine. You did. And that's exciting. You did. So, you did. Uh, as you're ramming your head through a wall, my head will be still attached to my body for one more week of guillotine. So, that's exciting. Yeah, mine too, but I'm rather win this league. But uh, yeah, on our next show, we'll talk about the Sabres game. We'll talk about hopefully another win, hopefully a convincing win for the Buffalo Bandits or uh, Buffalo Bills. And then you'll <laughs> definitely want to stay tuned for the Buffalo Bandits topic that we have in store for you next week. So thank you all for listening to another episode of the Buffalo Sports Collective. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and threads at Buffalo Sports Collective and on X at Buffalo Sports Collective, or I'm sorry, Buffalo Sports Co. Visit our website at buffalosportscollective.com. Subscribe to our channel wherever you listen to podcasts and make sure you leave us a review on Apple and Spotify. Until next time, bye-bye.